The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been looking now, we're getting close to finishing our study this fall, starting in September, of the 16 steps, the Buddha's, <clears throat> probably the Buddha's most complete <coughs> systematic meditation instructions. And even though we, it's called the sutta, the discourse is called the discourse, the anapanasati discourse, mindfulness of the in and out breath. That's what that word means, anapanasati. But it's not really about the breath. It's really about mindfulness of the mind. But in the context of being aware of the breath, right, the, bre- the breath, the physicality of breathing in and out, really just operates as a kind of tether helping the mind remember this embodied experience of body-mind, this awareness of body-mind, right? So we've been working through these 16 steps, and it really takes us all the way from being an ordinary neurotic human being where one thought just leads to the next, and basically where the mind, it's not even correct to say that I'm doing it. The mind just is acting out its cultural genetic conditioning. Right? And then all of a sudden that mind bumps into these teachings, let's say, and the first thing it says is, I've got a trick for you. If you train your mind to bring a full, unwavering attention to something simple like the physicality of breathing in and breathing out, you, the mind, will put down its obsessive proliferating tendencies. Why? Because now it's bringing this full, unwavering attention to this ordinary experience of breathing in as sensation, physicality breathing out. So in a sense, there's no room in the mind to worry, to plan, to compare, to judge, to wonder if I'm doing the job of a meditator, right? There's just no space in the mind because that mind has been trained to be fully, wholly aware of that simple experience. Like if you're aware of the breath as a touching, some of you do it this way, right? And there's many ways to do it. There's not one way. But some of you are aware of that touching as the air goes through the nostrils. So if I've trained my mind to be very relaxed and very interested together, so fully, so wholly, then it can't do anything else for that moment or those moments. And then with practice for more and more unwavering moments. And so for those moments then, that mind has put down obsession and proliferation, which means it's much more than one might think. Because so much of the sense of me as a suffering being requires my mind to construct the idea of me as a suffering being who's got to do this and concerned about that. Just like when we're in the deep sleep cycle, of course we're not awake for this, but the mind puts everything down. Not necessarily when we're dreaming, right? We're still burdened, neurotically burdened when we're dreaming, but we're just neurotically burdened by whatever the story of the dream is. 
So our mind knows the experience of putting down. It's not that hard. Even when you're just playing with your buddy or your partner or your cat or dog, and for just a few seconds, you're just that's all you're doing, 100%, wholeheartedly, you also drop everything in those seconds or moments too. But what we haven't done as human beings is gotten interested in that phenomena. And that's really what this mental heart training is. And it's the first two steps. And as I've been saying over these months now, you'll see that as you get some continuity, the body and the mind begins to change. So just even at the level of the breath, your breath goes from sort of ordinary breathing to a more refined, subtle, shorter, even breathing. Because the breath, the physicality of breathing, starts to reflect the whole system being less agitated, less disturbed, less fragmented. And everything begins to settle. So the first two instructions are basically take up the physicality of breathing, whether you feel it here, 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 as a whole body kind of experience, or for some of you, who for whatever reasons where the breath is triggering, like you have some trauma related to your breathing, you might use some other phenomena, right? Because it isn't about the breath, although there are some real nice attributes with the breath, which I won't go into because I've talked about it in previous talks. But it doesn't have to be the breath. It's really about putting everything down by taking up an exclusive present moment object. And letting that start to settle the whole system down. And then after there's some momentum, then we drop the exclusive attention and we move to a more open whole body awareness as we're breathing in and out anyway. Breathing in, aware of the totality of the whole body. Without picking and choosing, without judging. So it's not about me trying to create a good body, because we do that a lot in sitting where I'm like I'm using awareness and breath to get the tension in my shoulders to release or my gut to relax or my jaw to soften, right? There's a lot of those techniques out there, but that's not what we're doing here. So when we're breathing in aware of the whole body, it's like right now this is how the body is. And the healing part is discovering or uncovering the mind that's willing to be okay with the body as it's presenting itself in this moment through the duration of breathing in, through the duration of breathing out. So the calm, noticing the calm, which is the fourth step, depends on this whole body awareness as you breathe in and out, the non-judgingness of the whole body awareness, the not trying to fix, the, the beautiful yes, to the body as you breathe in, the beautiful yes to the body as you breathe out. That's what allows a sense of calm to arise. It's not that all of a sudden your aches and pains or your old age or whatever has gone away. What's shifted here is the mind is no longer disturbed by the body, whatever the way the body is. And this is one of the profound things because a lot of the times because we are embodied, we have sights and sounds 
touches, smells, and tastes. It's a big part of our life. But more than that sort of aspect, that physical aspect of the five senses, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and seeing, right, is what the mind makes of it. Whether the mind likes it or not, doesn't like it, for example. So what we're really healing in that first, with those first four instructions is how the mind is relating to the body is getting healed. Not our physical existence in the sense of what's being seen, heard, smelled, tasted, and touched, but that the mind is willing to be in harmony, okay with what's being seen, heard, smelled, tasted, and touched. So, of course, not a lot of smell and taste going on when we're in a sitting, formal meditation time, right? But there are sights, even with the eyes closed. There are sounds, even in a relatively quiet room. Definitely sensations, right? But we can train the mind to be relating with a lot of acceptance, which then allows there to be that pervasive bodily calm. The calm, the bodily calm comes because the mind's okay with the body. That's our first step, right? And then we bring awareness, wisdom and awareness to the mental activity. So we start with bringing uh, this wisdom awareness of bring attention to the bodily activity, sensations mostly, but to some degree hearing and seeing, smelling, tasting. Now to the mental activity, and the, the trick here is not to, to, to like initially look at mental activity, the best aspect of it, the joy and then the ease, the more refined pleasantness, mental pleasantness here. Right? Now, there may be a lot of agitating thoughts, a lot of anxiety, some fear, wanting to fix. Right? There could be all kinds of mental activity that's relatively tight or heavy. But with this fifth instruction, Buddha says here, one trains oneself while breathing in, experiencing joy. One trains oneself while breathing out, experiencing joy. So we're on purpose bringing the attention to that light, buoyant flow, energetic flow, like a like the body, mind, heart, this starts to feel like a authentic, serene, bright smile. Ah. Now, our habit is not to notice the pleasant, the wholesome. Our habit is to notice what we perceive as being dangerous or bad or hard or difficult. That's what gets our attention. But it's just a habit. So this fifth instruction, is it's a real turning point where it's like we're given permission and we're basically told it's, if you don't undertake the training to notice what's beautiful, like joy, your life's not going to go very well. Right? We have to go beyond that sort of beastly habit. Really, It's really an animal habit to notice danger. And the trouble is with humans, we have a more complicated mind because of language. So there may not be a saber-toothed tiger hunting us right now, but my thinking mind 
can generate probably thousands of problems, different pictures, right? different imaginings, like that you don't like me, you think I'm stupid, right? right? That could be the saber-toothed tiger in the moment, or, you know, my cat scratching my couch at home right now, right? So there could be any number of things, or some government official, some politician is doing something stupid. Could be any number of things for my mind to trip up about, right? So those are the endlessness of what the mind might react to be disturbed by, be get tight around. So I'm specifically training, let all that possibilities, all that mental activity, I'm not trying to stop it, I'm not repressing mental activity. This is the trick. Anybody who's been a parent or is a parent, you know this trick. If you keep focusing on what the kid or the dog is doing wrong, you and the dog are going to get really neurotic. But instead, if you just keep noticing what's wholesome and good as you breathe in and breathe out, something beautiful will happen in the heart and mind and body. So we notice the lightness. We notice the buoyant feeling, even if initially, which it probably will be, it will be faint. But if you do the first four well and you really get a taste of that pervasive bodily calm, joy is pretty close by at that point. And just even especially with practice, bringing to mind the concept joy, right? And then sometimes just bringing a mental image, like, I love my cat. I mean, something silly. I mean, not, it's not that my love for my cat is silly, but, but I mean, simple, right? And then I, I remember the quality of joy. The mind remembers it. And then once I remember it, I can keep it in mind. See, one of the things we don't believe because we're so, uh, we have a strong sense of, and this is an erroneous sense, of continuity. So if I'm a grump, it doesn't make sense for me to experience joy in the next moment if I have this idea that I'm having a bad day. But the thing is, attitude is a very fluent or fluid thing. And what makes grumpiness, just as an example, seem pervasive is that wrong idea of continuity. If I'm a grump now, I've got to be a grump in the next moment. If I think life is a B-I-T-C-H, then I have to think it's bad in the next moment and then in the next moment. And the trouble is, one of the most oppressive things is we have a fixed idea that life sucks. And uh, we live with that. We live in the oppressiveness of that un- uh, re, that idea that we haven't actually checked out honestly and directly. It's just sort of a convenient and arrogant notion that we just, it, and then it becomes an ossified habit. We just, the mind just gets in the habit of thinking life is bad. And then we look through that lens and we ignore counterfacts, massage facts to fit that view. Right, because we're addicted to consistency, continuity, as opposed to which is what is much more in a Buddhist frame and other spiritual frames, which is this is a mind-created world. So we should 
we may not like it, but we need to take responsibility for the world we actually live in. Otherwise, we're destined to follow habits <laughs> like life is hard. And then that becomes our lived reality because the mind never got curious if there are other possibilities. So this is really that fifth step where we're willing to go beyond habits. I just say, well, what will happen if I do my best to keep joy in mind as I breathe in? Just for that, whatever that is, five seconds or so or a little longer, keep joy in mind as I breathe out. Just keep it in mind. Just do my best. Feel that energetic, light, buoyant, mental or heart-based smile. Lightness of heart. And again, at any of these steps, as you're sort of learning the map, you're always welcome, if it helps, to use a, a, a word or a phrase as a meditation crutch or support. So like at step five, you could just, as you're breathing in, repeat the phrase lightness of heart or the word joy. Joyful heart, joyful interest. These are just some possibilities. And then, of course, repeat that phrase, that word as you breathe out. So that it's a nice way to learn the map is to give yourself a meditation word or phrase that you repeat at each step. And then once you kind of get the map, then you'll just have that available if the mind needs a little prompt, a little support to keep that particular quality in mind to do the training for that in-breath, that out-breath. And then naturally, if you see, if the mind sees enough joy, enough continuity, it will naturally evoke sukha, ease of heart, contentedness of heart. The heart that doesn't need the moment to be different than it is because it's content. It's not like I'm trying to accept things. I'm happy to let the moment be the way that it is because the heart feels at ease with conditions, at ease with the circumstances. And so we keep that ease in mind as we breathe in and as we breathe out. So remember, the second set of four is about making peace with mental activity. But the first two steps are really the setup. When I notice joy, it becomes more of a dominant quality of mental activity. And then I notice ease, Ease is a, a dy dynamic mental quality. It's not like static. It's a flow of ease, a movement of ease. And we're keeping that in mind. And that just brings a lot of space to the mind. Because it does, it's, it's fine with conditions. Because it's really been keeping contentment, ease in mind. And so now we put it to the test. Breathing in, aware of all the mental activity. Breathing out, aware of all mental activity. But now, because there's been a lot of ease, we're looking, aware, noticing mental activity with a sense of ease and contentment. Oh yeah, it's just thoughts, just feelings, just memory, just perception, just intention, just all of that mental activity being known, being known being known, because the sense of contentment and ease has been developed, the capacity of the mind to notice it and keep it in mind has been developed, 
So now the mind has a different relationship to mental activity. The mind normally uses mental activity to try to get to ease, get to that inner happiness, right? But now this mind has inner happiness, so it's not dependent on mental activity. So then it relates to mental activity with equanimity, right? Just leaves it alone. And that turns out to be the secret to quieting the mind down. It's just leaving it alone. Not trying to make the mind quiet down. Not being averse to mental activity. But not being dependent on it. That's what quiets the thinking mind down. And the reason the mind isn't dependent on mental activity because almost always we're using mental activity to get to happiness. But when we really develop mental happiness inner happiness, ease, then we don't need thinking to get to ease. So the mind leaves it alone, and then the thinking mind begins to quiet down. So that's the fourth instruction now in the second set of four. Here we were looking at bodily activity and calming it. Now we're looking at mental activity and calming that, quieting that. right? Through seeing clearly the way we calm the body is we saw that the mind can relate to the body with wisdom, with like acceptance, letting it be. And that settles things down. And we realize I can look at the mind, the mental activity rather, and everything settles down. Now, the third set of four, the mind can look at something very subtle. It's always here, never not been here what we might call the space of the present moment, the space of the mind, the space of the knowing mind, because our attention is always obsessed with activity. Activity of the body, the five physical senses, activity of the mind, right? Never so interested, right? How often, naturally, before you started to study the Buddhist teachings, did you just go, whoa, space of the present moment? (laughs) Not likely. I mean, it's possible. Some of us, I remember as a kid having that experience a few times. I think I mentioned, I don't know if it was Sunday night, but when I was like seven or so, six or seven, I I had several experiences taking a bath. So like kind of a meditative experience. Grew up in a family of seven kids. One of the few times it's relatively quiet is when you're in the bathroom taking a bath, right? Just sitting there and just, I remember now, in hindsight, I didn't quite get what was going on as a kid, of course, but just the space of the present moment. And it really, it was a little mystical experience, just noticing not what was happening, but just the space of now and how peaceful that is. And that's really what we're learning with this third set of instructions. You could call the third set of four instructions getting to know the beautiful mind. Not activity. The beauty, what's really beautiful of the mind, as nice as a beautiful thought can be, because our thinking mind and emoting mind, we can have really beautiful emotions and thoughts, right? But more beautiful and kind of a different scale of beauty and, he, and kind of spiritual healing is the underlying nature of the mind. Not particular construction of the mind, 
but the underlying nature of the mind. And remember that phrase, nature of the mind, those are just words, but it's really pointing to here and now. So whatever here and now is for each of us, this right here, this, this is the mind. And what dominates this for each of us is the activity of the body and the activity of the mind. But there's also the space of here and now for each of us. And that has gone uninvestigated our whole life because it's subtle. Right? It's not far away, of course. It's here. But does it naturally get the attention of attention of the knowing mind? Because the knowing mind goes to objects, the activity of the body, the activity of the mind. But now we've settled all that down. We've calmed the body. We've calmed the activity of the mind. Now it's easier for wisdom, let's say, to intuit space of here and now, space of the mind. And the second step there is to really uh, naturally, organically appreciate the space of here and now. And you might even sense it even while I'm talking. The space of the mind is beautiful. Its nature is empty of any disturbance because disturbances can only happen at the level of bodily activity and the mind reacting to it and mental activity and the mind reacting to mental activity. That's what fragments, that's what squeezes the heart not the underlying nature of the mind. So we're getting to know the nature of the mind and we're appreciating, here it usually gets translated as gladdening, but that really means, as far as I understand, like as you're breathing in, as you're breathing out, you're particularly training the wisdom in the mind, the knowing mind, to notice the peacefulness the silence, the space, the goodness of that quiet. How nice it is that there's no problem with the space. Problems always arise in the space of the mind. But the mind, the knowing mind itself, isn't a problem. Never has been, never will be. Now this isn't the final like liberation. It's just an important thing to get to know about the heart and mind. Remember, you can always use the word heart instead of mind. Chitta, same thing, heart-mind. So we're noticing the space, we're gladdening it, appreciating it. That allows the sort of quietness, the silence of it, the stillness of it, the peacefulness of it to become more and more and more apparent. And like, so here we have a knowing mind. And what is it knowing? It's knowing the quiet, the silence, the space, that the mind, the space of the mind is empty of self-centered problems. Empty of a problem. No problem. And that gets translated often as a releasing. The mind is realized as being empty of a problem. No problem here. No problem. Now, almost always through our life, there's been a problem. Like even when things have been really good, we want it to last. That's a problem. 
We don't want it to go away. We don't want things to change. This is so sweet. This is just how I want it. Don't change. Right? So, but here in this meditative experience where the mind has gotten relatively subtle so we can notice the space, appreciate the space, really develop that quiet, peaceful, empty of selfing, empty of self-centered drama space, right? Because the activity has been really stilled and the mind is just noticing the space and noticing the absence of problem. And the mind learns something, oh, this is being without a self-centered problem. And that leads leaves an oppression in the mind. Like, oh, this is a taste of freedom. Because the mind is experiencing being without any existential weight, any ex- existential anxiety, fear, or whatever you want to say. Right? No problem. And that leaves an impression. So now I'm back, let's say, in an ordinary state of consciousness, but I have that impression remaining like being an ordinarily burdened human being is optional. Normally, we're uh, a burdened human being, but we don't think it's optional. We just presume that the anxiety and fear and craving and all that sort of ordinary existential weight I carry around with me, we just presume that's what it means to be a human being. But when we have more and more tastes here at step 12, at the end of that third set, here we're looking at the activity of the body, here we're looking at the activity of the mind, here we're looking at the nature of the mind, the space of the mind, and discovering the capacity right, for no problem. And that causes kind of a revolution in the mind like, is there a way to live all the time, not just when I'm in a really subtle meditative state, but when I'm back in the messiness of relationship and a cat scratching the couch and falling in love and raising kids and trying to make the world a more just place, is there a way for that freedom, the absence of existential anxiety to remain? Right? And then the Buddha says, yeah, there is. And that's the fourth set of instructions. Right? So that leads us, this is how we end up. So this is 13, 14, 15, 16. Cheat sheets up here. Remember, if you're getting the weekly email, there's a link to all the additional study materials for mindfulness of breathing if you want that. So... The question that the Buddha is going to address with these last four instructions is, what, when I pay attention to it, supports the mind letting go of its habit of constructing problems, self-centered problems, self-centered drama? What does the mind need to keep in mind that (coughs) basically integrates that insight the mind had at step 12 where it realizes the mind being without any selfing, right? That's what it realized. It was a little insight that the mind needs to have many, many times seeing that very subtle mind. All all the mind is looking at is the space of the mind. And because it's just looking at that, 
It's not noticing anything that's disturbing the space of the mind because it's not interested in it. It's interested in the undisturbed space of the mind. One thought experience is uh, that uh, Guy Armstrong used, this is many, 20, 25 years ago, but I remember him saying, it's like, if you can, um, it's just a thought experiment. If you can imagine being in deep space and you're looking out in a way where they're in a place where there's no galaxies or any stars, right? But there's a big star behind you, lots of light, but you're looking into deep space, so you're not going to see anything, right? And then the mind, let's say, has a capacity to, you know, throw objects out in front of it. And of course, immediately, if I threw a ball out there, it's going to reflect the light of the sun and I'll see the ball, right? But if nothing's getting thrown out there, I don't see anything. So what we're doing with that, we're realizing that it's possible for the for the mind to realize no problem, no reactivity, but it's because, like at step 12, it's not because there are no problems, it's because of this particular choice of what the mind is paying attention to. Right? So this is like the liberation of concentration, you could say, in, in sort of Buddhist terms. So when the mind gets very concentrated or very still, the mind experiences the absence of craving, but the tendency to crave hasn't gone away. It's just been really suppressed because the mind is really interested in the stillness, the space, the emptiness. But now the mind's interested in that, that experience of the absence of craving, and it's interested in it all day long, even while I'm you know, making dinner. So then we have to understand, well, what allows the mind to be in activity where there's lots of balls <laughs> and they're being reflected, they're being known. Some are pretty and really entrancing, some are really ugly and some are horrific. But the mind doesn't turn any of it into a personal problem. And so the, what the Buddha said, well, what one, what one needs to do is train the mind to notice these three things, basically impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the impersonal nature. So now we're not trying to stay at that subtle level. The mind then, the next instruction is, so while you're breathing in, so the Buddha says, training yourself while breathing in, experiencing the inconstant, uncertain, impermanent aspect. So whatever object the knowing mind is knowing, like the feeling of breathing in, for example, instead of, oh, breathing in, notice the changingness of breathing in. Breathing in is never a thing. It's never a noun. Right? That feeling of the belly rising or that feeling of touching is an inconstant, impermanent, flow. It's never a thing. never becomes a thing. It's always becoming, 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 never arriving. And that's not just true of the sensations of breathing in. It's true of a thought. A thought never becomes a thing. When you observe a thought arising and passing away, the most obvious thing, especially when you've trained yourself, is to notice 
its ephemeral, changing, inconstant nature. An emotion. Even pain in the knee seems so solid and permanent and static, but when you look at it honestly with kind of a, a relaxed, alert quality, pain is a flow. It isn't a thing. So this is the next training. Breathing in, breathing out. One's training oneself to notice the changingness of whatever it is the mind is knowing. It doesn't really matter what the object is. So if there's a predominant thing that the mind is knowing, phenomena that the mind is knowing, then notice that it's changing. If there isn't anything uh, predominant, then just notice the sensations of breathing in or breathing out or whatever mental activity might be there. But don't get caught by the object. Get interested in that it's changing. Keep doing that. And the thing is, you can do this, so this would be the 13th instruction, you can do this all day long. This is actually a really good daily life practice. You're going into a meeting and you notice that the beginning of the meeting is happening. It's not a thing. The beginning of the meeting isn't a noun. It's a changing process. Right? When exactly is the beginning of the meeting? When you walk, just that instant you walk through the, like, and at what point? is the beginning, right? It, it's a flow. The middle, the end, right? And everything, the whole day, Sunday, is a flow. Because the word Sunday, the concept Sunday, makes it seem like a thing. But it never is, never could be a thing. So it's a real shift in perception, this 13th step, where we're noticing change. And you know you're doing this right in your formal sits throughout the day when a, a pervasive greater, uh, pervasive and powerful quality of dispassion begins to arise. And you're going to sit down to a big meal, exactly what you want to eat, and the quality of mind is dispassion-like. Yeah, it will be really pleasant, and then it will change. The pleasantness itself will never be a thing. The satisfaction of this mill will never be something that somebody can own. Will never be a lasting quenching of desire. Everything is like that. You finally get the house together, but it it never becomes what we imagine it will become, like satisfying in a permanent, lasting way. And that we call that in Buddhism dispassion or disenchantment. It doesn't mean that pleasant meals aren't pleasant or the love you have for your child or your your partner or whatever isn't real. It might be actually more poignant. It just means that the mind can't own it or depend on it. And the, the sort of phrase that sort of is so poignant to me that one teacher said is... Um, there is nothing here for me. And the Buddha, you might have heard me use this uh, simile from the Buddhist discourse, Excuse me, where he talks about a really, really, really skilled butcher who um, you know, cuts the bones off of the meat so skillfully, throws the bones to the dog, but there's nothing 
left on the bones, but maybe a little smear blood, right? And the dog, of course, think bones. There's going to be something good there. But as the sutta goes, the discourse goes, the dog only finds vexation. Not a word we use much, right? Because it looked good, but there wasn't anything there for the dog, ultimately, right? Just some smell. It smelled like meat. Maybe a little hint of something nutritious from the remaining blood on the bone. I know it's kind of a graphic image. But you get the idea, and the Buddha used these really earthy images to kind of get, that's what starts happening naturally. You see a really beautiful scene, you know, winter scene, whatever it might be. And it's the mind still understands this is beautiful. But there's nothing there for me. Nothing I can, the ego can really own. And the Buddha says, and you may not like this, so you've got to check it out to see if it really leads to happiness. He says, while breathing in, train yourself to notice this dispassionate, unsatisfactoriness, disenchantment. You know, these are some of the words used here. To keep it in mind, both with difficult, unpleasant experiences, obviously, but also with neutral and pleasant experiences. There's actually nothing here for me. I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to feed my body. I'm still going to hang out with my friend, dance with my partner. You know, I'll look like I'm happy, right? But there will be this very sm- growing steady wisdom that understands it's sort of on this more subtle level. The ego can't build anything on this pleasant experience or any experience, pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. It is what it is, but it isn't solid ground. It doesn't lead to a lasting satisfaction. Now, all of us, I'm imagining, in some, to some degree, have begun to taste this kind of unsatisfactoriness, especially as we get older. It comes naturally if we don't slide into bitterness as we get older. There will be this, at least available to us as we age, this growing wisdom like, yeah, there's nothing here for me. I mean... I like being sexually intimate with my partner. But I see that. Like just in that activity of sexual intimacy, it's sort of like I feel because I've been programmed by culture and by my genetic makeup and you know all those sort of tendencies. They're still alive in me. You know, my body's healthy, but it's changed over the years, you know. Imagine like, I don't know if you can think that far back. But when we were teenagers, you know, it seemed really big back then. Same with food. Same with, like, people who wanted to see new places and travel. Some of you have been able to travel a lot or do this or do that or have a car. What was that movie, To Be Big? Remember with Tom Hanks? And then he was big. It wasn't such a big deal anymore (laughs) after a while, right? So it's sort of like this. Now, this is different than, this is not depression. Dissatisfaction, seeing the unsatisfactoriness, this growing 
disenchantment and dispassion is liberating because what happens is the mind is no longer, as that country song goes, looking for love in all the wrong places. Because we think that the next meal, the next sexual activity, the next this, the next that, is going to be the ticket. And I'll have what I want and I'll be satisfied. But is it? Has it ever proven to be that way? No, it hasn't. Because we would be deeply content if that were true. Because we've had that nice meal, that nice sexual activity, that nice sight or visit or trip or massage or, you know, you name it, whatever it was. So we're really highlighting this both specifically in our set when we're doing, now this would be step 14, breathing in. The Buddha is asking us to train the mind, to train the heart while you breathe in just for that duration. Can you keep dispassion, disenchantment, the truth of unsatisfactoriness in mind? Can you keep it in mind through the duration of an out-breath? So again, you can take this up like you might take a month to do impermanence or a lifetime. And then you, the next lifetime you can take, I'm joking, <laughs> unsatisfactoriness, disenchantment, dispassion. And then the third step here in that last set of four is cessation, is the word, how it gets translated, where we're really looking, training the mind to look at the cessation of craving, the cessation of a self who wants something or wants to get rid of something. right? Because that possibility is there in any moment where the safe, the self, sorry, that habit of constructing a mark who wants the moment to be different than it is. So we, Buddhism, sometimes we use the word becoming. Like I want to become the person who's done with this talk so I can be at home or with something like that, right? So that's, that's sort of like a leaning, energetic leaning forward. So when the mind, when that activity of craving ceases, can we keep that cessation in mind, the possibility of no selfing in mind through an in-breath, through an out-breath, right? We're keeping that in mind. It's a very subtle thing, right? Like the absence, and it arises naturally because the mind has trained, keeping in permanence the ephemeral, changing, insubstantial, uncertain flow nature of phenomena. We've got that in mind, gotten good at that, mind's gotten skilled at that, and that leads to a greater sense of dispassion. There's nothing there for me, can't count on it, won't be satisfying in a meaningful, lasting way, keeping that in mind. Then there are more and more moments of the absence of selfing, keeping that in mind, keeping that in mind. And that develops into a more full, complete uprooting of the tendency of our heart, of any this heart, to grasp. And keeping that sort of integration of letting go, that like the, the sort of pervasive sense of the heart that doesn't grasp, doesn't self. We're keeping that integrated, pervasive, 
release of the heart and mind. That would be the perfection of the path, right? That's the 16th step. Usually translated simply as keep it in mind, letting go as you breathe in. Keep it in mind, letting go as you breathe out. Or relinquishment, sometimes that word gets translated as. So the four words here, impermanence, but you know there are a lot of words that kind of insubstantial, ephemeral, inconstant, um, uncertain, unreliable, ungovernable, unsatisfactory, dispassion, um, disenchantment, cessation of selfing here, relinquishment, letting go, the unshakable release of the heart as you breathe in, as you breathe out, the heart that doesn't cling as you breathe in and breathe out. Ajahn Chah, one of the great um, Thai masters of this last century, describes Nibbana or liberation as realizing the mind or heart free of grasping. That would be that fourth step, the 16th step there. And I've used up all the time tonight. But next Sunday, we'll finish up these instructions on mindfulness of breathing, but they've all been recorded over the last three months, so if you're just showing up, you can get these instructions. I've made a few copies up here of the 16 steps, but if you're on the weekly email, you can see this. There's a link to all the instructions, or just go to the website, look under resources, one of the main menu items, scroll down, you'll see Buddhist studies, open that up. On the right side are all the past Buddhist studies courses. One of them is called Mindfulness of Breathing. You'll get the cheat sheet. You get the more 18-page version with all the footnotes that describe what each of these 16 steps mean from a number of really wise teachers. All these talks, all the past course. Another um, person from Spirit Rock who gave a series of talks on Mindfulness of Breathing, Temple Smith. So there's just a lot of good resources and articles there if you want to dig in over the months. But let's let go of the words for just a few seconds. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. I'll save more time for discussion next Sunday. Enjoy a little peace. Thanks for coming, everyone. Really nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.